you just sat down and that John Williams score just comes on and you could just hear the roar and applause. It was magical. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast, where we discuss the world of film from a fresh angle. And now your host, Robert Yanis Jr. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. This is Rob. On this show, we democratize the film criticism conversation by bringing on fans and critics alike to dig into their personal connection to a current or classic release. Last year, we talked about the Star Wars saga, uh, one movie every month for most of 2019, leading up to the rise of Skywalker. And this year, we're turning our attention to Harry Potter. So to kick things off, I'd like to introduce Bree from Geeky Girl Gab. Welcome to the Crooked Table Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so tell people a little bit about Geeky Girl Gab and uh, you know what you and your co-host Candace do over there. Yeah, um, so Candace and I met in high school, um, and we've been friends ever since. And you know, both of us are deemed geeky girls, as you would say. And she came up with the idea for having a podcast, and us just you know either ranting or enjoying fandom life. And she's the one who started it and kind of brought me into um, her little podcast group that's also comprised of our other host, Vanessa, um, who we've also known since high school. So it's kind of just like friends who just talk about geeky girl stuff. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, I've been on a couple of times and I don't think I've ever been on a call with Vanessa. I think it's just been you and Candace. Oh, that's right. Soon yeah. you'll have to join us when Vanessa's there. Yeah, I'm like the the Vanessa stand-in, I guess. In the, on yes. The, whenever there's a, a cat-related movie, whether it be Lion King or Cats, which, I'm, by the way, so even since we did that episode, I'm still listening to it begrudgingly. It's on oh, in no. some ways. <laughs> it's, it's I catchy. feel like it's still it, it's catchy, but it's also haunting. It's a curse. It's a it's a it's a gift and a curse. I feel this like. is true. Mostly a curse. <laughs> Mostly a curse, which yes. is which is a good segue actually, because we're going to be talking about Harry Potter, um, which is all about curses and, and spells and such. So since we're starting this off with obviously Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, if you're not in the U.S., which that really annoys me. It's like, can they just be consistent? Just call it the Philosopher's Stone here. We'll figure it out. It's like well, that. Yeah, well, I, the, yeah. It it is frustrating that you know. People in the U.S. are like, well, American kids won't understand what <laughs> right. a philosopher is. Like, what? Really? Are we that dumb? I mean, that's, we'll leave that question hanging out there. <laughs> have, have you seen the news these days? There's, there's, yeah. uh, there's pretty sufficient evidence to that, uh, to that point. That's true. <laughs> so, I feel like Harry Potter fans, though, we can get it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So tell listeners, you know, and me a little bit about how you got into Harry Potter. What was your first exposure to uh, to the franchise? Yeah, it was in middle school. So I am dating myself. So hi. Um, <laughs> um, it was, I think, the, the third book had just come out or the fourth book. Because I remember going to the opening night. Um, the One of the book openings that like Barnes. Barnes and Noble used to put, um, and the fourth book was the first time that I believe they had one of those. So I think I discovered around the third book and I remember, you know, getting the first three for Christmas and then waiting for the fourth book. And, you know, I kind of just fell madly in love with the book series. Um, 
you know, I was like, it was a bullied kid. So I feel like, you know, when you're a bullied kid, you just feel like you do want to escape. And, you know, I mean, Harry was in more of like severe abuse, obviously, than I was. Um, but I feel like you you could relate to that and relate to him. And then having this magical man, Hagrid, just come out and say, you're a wizard and sweep you off to this magical world. I feel like a lot of it was escapism. And we got to experience this new life with him. And it was just filled with wonder and magic. And sure, there was bullies, but it was magic school you got to attend. And that's so much better than algebra. <laughs> You know, so I feel like when, you know, for my generation of millennials, you know, I feel like when we grew up with Harry, we grew up with all the characters and we kind of just had that sense of longing for something better and more acceptance. And, you know, I feel a lot with the books, you know, they taught us, you know, love overcomes hate and how to be strong when things got bad. So I think, you know, it's kind of just built up this resilience and it's been lasting ever since. Yeah, I mean, it's the classic, you know, chosen one narrative. It's Star Wars, it's Mm -hmm. Matrix, it's Lord of the Rings, it's, you know, that kind of thing. And especially being set at this age where you're starting to realize, like you're starting to, I guess, experience or more observe the adult world and kind of realize that you're approaching adolescence you're not even there yet but you're like not you're a kid but you're you're like you you know it's kind of in that weird middle ground you're basically it carries almost a tween in this one and he's like 11 so he's like getting there um but it's it's that that period where all kids kind of feel like they don't fit in like they all feel like they're under the stairs um living under the stairs you know in their relative's house (laughs) and like like everybody wants to be told that they're special especially at that age so i think you know I think that that's kind of the, the the core of the appeal of this, like you were saying. And for me, when this came out, I hadn't read any of the books. I was I had actually just started college a couple of months before this came out uh, in theaters, and I was working at the AMC uh, Veterans over here in Tampa. And I remember hearing a lot about it. I remember working a concession like on opening night. And there were people coming up like with robes, with the lightning, uh, uh, you know, a uh, scar on their forehead and that, all that kind of thing. And I was like, what is this Harry Potter thing about? I guess I need to see this. And then I remember seeing it with my family and totally getting swept up in it and, um, you know, feeling like like I was witnessing something special. Like it felt like a other Wizard of Oz kind of transformative movie for that generation. And, um, you know, my brother is was 10 when this movie came out. So he was right in the Harry Potter age. So he, um, you know, he was really big on this franchise. So this was huge for, for the entire run uh, as far in my, in my household. So, I mean, I really grew up surrounded by it a lot and then went back and, and read the books and all that. So it's been an interesting ride seeing this franchise mature and the, as well as the actors kind of grow up in front of us. Yeah, it's, it's really cool that that happened. Um, with the movie, especially, you just felt like you got to know them, you know, and just see them transform. Like you were saying, it's like, you know, what I think they all started around the same age that they were supposed to be portraying in the books anyway. And, you know, we followed them on this journey. It's just really cool. I mean, it really has stuck with me. I, when I travel, I make it a point to buy, um, a Harry Potter book wherever I go. So I have like a South Korean version. Oh, that's cool of the Philosopher's Stone. 
Um, I have the Scottish version, which I can't really read. Uh, I mean, I can't read the Korean one. Yeah, either. I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, hopefully one day. Um, but yeah, and then I got to go to the Warner Brother studio tour in the UK. And it was honestly the most amazing time ever. Well, not only that, I mean, you know, as the the books hit, because the first one came out in 1997, and the movie, I, I think the Goblet of Fire, the fourth book that you were mentioning, which, by the way, it's funny now looking back that it's hard to imagine there being that kind of outpouring for anything being released in physical form at midnight at this point. I know, it is weird, but I, I remembered, I mean, my mom was like, fine, you know, you can go, we'll get the book, but you can't read past, you know, you have to go to bed. And I never would. I would just stay up reading. Um, but like, it was a whole thing. Me and my friends would go, we dress up. I mean, there was this tremendous, just like joy and murmur when you were all there collectively together. It wasn't waiting for the movie. It was waiting for a book. And I don't think any other book has really made an impact like Harry Potter has. Yeah, I think so too. And that's that's the crazy thing too. Like I said, it was starting with the books, then the movies, and now it's evolved because as you said, there there are people your generation then that grew up with this from when they were Harry's age on and now that it's a theme park at Universal and multiple yeah. ride like there's multiple sections. I don't know how familiar listeners are with theme parks, but like, you know, here in Florida, they it's all about Harry Potter. Like all the billboards are Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey and Harry Potter and Hagrid's whatever. Like everything is like a new Harry Potter attraction like every year basically. And it's become this is the reason why I, I wanted to do this franchise after Star Wars. It's become like a fandom on the level of Star Wars. There are people that grew up with Harry Potter in the same way that the uh, you know the previous generation grew up with Star Wars and the original trilogy. And I think that's that's really powerful. I mean, I don't think there's been an, a franchise that has had that you know cinematic franchise that has had that impact since Star Wars. Yeah, I think you're right. I was Twilight can't compare. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Hunger, Hunger Games was successful, but again, there's no theme parks really of it as far as I know. I'm sure they're working on something as ill-conceived as that might be. I think the, I guess the MCU is up there, but that's, again, you know, that's decades of material and, mm-hmm. and you know, this, this is a kind of a singular story and a singular set of characters in the way that the Star Wars trilogy was. So I just, it's interesting to look back on the fact that this t- took a decade to tell this story and... And just kind of looking at it now from uh, with a little more hindsight. Yeah, it, it's really interesting, and I yeah, I don't even think Lord of the Rings really. I mean, yeah, not granted, the I think way. the midnight showings were popular for Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't the same. Like, yeah, I think you're right. Star Wars and Harry Potter are pretty much on par. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is crazy to even say out loud. It's the kind of mainstream, like. <laughs> Exactly. Like Lord of the Rings was big, but it it's it's not Harry Potter has become Harry Potter and Star Wars are one of those things that like it's like a rite of passage. When you reach a certain age, but you gotta watch the Harry Potters, you gotta watch the Star Wars, you're gonna have merchandise, you're gonna be like play video games with it. Like it's not I don't think Lord of the Rings had that same level of, I guess, saturation. Yeah, and, and I do think going back to you your point of like kind of the everyman, um Luke and Harry are both really great examples, like Joseph Campbell's 
um, of that every hero, you know, the hero's journey. And maybe it was because they were simple in a way, but still complex that really resonate with people. Um, because Lord of the Rings, I think was really great, but it didn't have like, I guess the simplicity, you know, maybe Frodo was a little, it was a little convoluted at times right? Plus for it's people. A, it's also more of an ensemble cast too, I think. Yeah. I think with Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter, there's, there's, as you said, there's an everyman quality there, but there's also a singular focus and they're entering, discovering this world in the way that, that we are. Like Luke, yeah. like in both of the, in both A New Hope and Sorcerer's Stone, the lead character spends most of the time being like, what, you fought in the Clone Wars? What, what, I'm not a wizard. What, what are you talking about? You know, like basically it's, it's the sense of wonder that those two movies bring. And in particular, I think that's what makes this movie really stand out in this franchise is that it's the first time you see Diagon Alley. It's the first time you see, you know, Quidditch. It's the first time you, you know, you're introduced to the approach to Hogwarts castle on the, on the, uh, in the boats or, you know, the platform nine and three quarters. Like it's the first time you're experiencing this, all this as it is for Harry. And I think there's a, there's a, there's a, it's, it's easy to get swept up in that basically. It really is. Just as you were even mentioning, like, places and things like my whole body was just filled with delight. Um, it's, you know, that first time I opened that book or that first time I was sitting in that movie theater watching, um, you know, the screen come up and, you know, the WB logo happened and then we are get swept away into, you know, um, pivot drive. It, it really is that of, wow, this is happening. And, you know, it was so, I mean, oh, I, I can't even sometimes talk about it because I get choked up in just like the wonderment well, of that, it all. That John Williams score, which again, who did yes. Star Wars. Yeah. So the one, you know, the Warner Brothers shield comes on and all you need is that ding, 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 ding. And you're like, oh, it's Harry Potter. It's I happening. <laughs> yeah, it it's really, you know, kind of like what cats try to do with Victoria was make her like her point of view of welcoming us into this world. Um, you know, it it's nice that we had Harry to guide us through everything. You we were experienced and learning everything with him. And I mean, what an amazing job um the first movie does with really bringing to life what we read. Um on print, you know, for me at least, I actually thought the first movie did a powerful job of like showing us the world and just like, oh my goodness, is this real? Like, oh, I want to go there. <laughs> well, we'll get it. We'll get into the details of that in, in a little bit. <laughs> but generally, before we start, before we delve into Sorcerer's Stone and really kind of focus in on on this movie. Uh, I do think that the difference between Cats and Harry Potter is the world actually makes sense here. <laughs> and, you know, J.K. Rowling was so detailed in her description of the lore and the world building and everything, you know, everything fits together. I, regardless of how you feel about the Fantastic Beast franchise and whatever the hell that's doing, um, you know, I think with this story, she really had had a vision and she executed it really well. Yeah, I actually... Um how I got my Harry Potter book from Scotland is because I went to Edinburgh and, you know, I got in kind of late at night. I didn't really get to take in the architecture because it was at night. I just had time for late dinner and then go to bed. And when I 
first woke up and I got to venture outside, I thought I had stepped into Hogsmeade. It was just straight out of the book. And I know she wrote um, wrote there at the Elephant Cafe, which I got to, you know, go inside. I got a coffee. And it was honestly magical because I was like, oh, wow, she wrote, you know, some of the book here. And she, you know, kind of based everything around Edinburgh. And you can really tell. And it was, I mean, it was magical. I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah, I think I think that's another thing that the Harry Potter franchise kind of gets gets taken for granted about it. I guess is just how well written those books are. Like that, the she she does have a way with language and description and and um, yeah, just painting a picture so that you know people that read people that are fans of the books when this first movie starts, it it really like everything feels like it matches what was in their heads, which is really hard to do and. You know, with all the uh, all the YA stuff that came after this, and all the fantasy stuff that came after this, and uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, I, I don't really think anything was able to recreate that. And it's also on the page. A lot of, I mean, I haven't read the Twilight books, but I'm not particularly optimistic about the writing quality necessarily. So it's, it's like, not that great. Yeah, that's what I figured. Um, I saw, I did see all the movies though, because I try to, I try not to be the the kind of person that's tearing something down without having seen it. So I, I made myself watch all five Twilight movies so that I could be like, yep, I, they're terrible. I've seen them. <laughs> uh, I actually recently watched those myself and yeah. I, Eclipse I, uh, is a little bit of a guilty pleasure, honestly. I, I haven't rewatched it since theaters because that one, I think that's the only one I did see in theaters. I actually do think that's kind of entertaining in, in a, in again, kind of a cat's sort of way. So bad it's good. Yeah, a little bit. Because it's just like, um, now we're really off topic, but it's kind of Edward and Jacob just like trying to outman each other, I guess, at certain points in the movie. It's just like, wow. Um, but but I digress. So, well, like, <laughs> go ahead. I guess with the characters too, the characters are painted in such a way I felt like I knew every character. I felt like I know um, the characters who are only mentioned a couple of times, like Lee Jordan. Like his announcer voice, like that's something I will always remember. Like it's just him, and like he's the announcer dude at the Quidditch pitches. You know, like you feel like you know every single person, and that I think is hard to accomplish. Yeah, it's a world that feels lived in. I think, and that's that's the the bottom line. That the um, I think before we get into any more specifics on the movie, let's just like play a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone right now. Did you ever make anything happen? Anything you couldn't explain? You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? Dear Mr. Potter, we are pleased to inform you that you have been accepted at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. In a few moments, you will pass through these doors and join your classmates. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. Good afternoon, class. Welcome to your first flying lesson. Stick your right hand over the broom and say up. Oh, oh, up. Wow. <laughs> Mr. Longbottom, Mr. Longbottom, Mr. Longbottom, exactly where do you think you're going? 
That was a little bit of the trailer for Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, directed by Chris Columbus. Uh, this, so this came out in November 2001, and it actually made $978 million worldwide in 2001. Like now, hitting a billion is like a, a benchmark. Like you're not successful. Like I keep seeing articles about The Rise of Skywalker hit a billion, but it's still kind of a disappointment because it cost 300 and then like double that for marketing and all of that. But this made 978 like almost 20 years ago on a budget of 125 and it was actually at the time it was released the second highest grossing film of all time after Titanic which I totally didn't realize that I guess worldwide uh it, yeah so that's kind of insane to think about that is I didn't even realize that to be honest and I think with sense. the movies there's also I think the consistency of it that they were all with the exception of Order of the Phoenix, written by Steve Cloves. So you have that kind of execution of, of J.K. Rowling's vision. And I think that really helps as well. It does when you have people who really understand what you're trying to accomplish. And I feel she had such a hand in the movies, which I feel like some writers don't get to really... Um, Make her vision come to life. Yeah, yeah, I think so. So when you saw this, you had read the books at this point? Is it correct? Yes. Um, that was 2001, so I was a freshman in high school. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so at that time, not all the books had come out yet. And so just having... I think just waiting for the books and just having this come out, you were just, I was just thrilled <laughs> to have something. And I remember going to midnight showing. I mean, my friend Liz and I, we were just like bouncing up and down, <laughs> like couldn't contain ourselves. How about you? Like, did you, so you saw it um, in theaters around that time as well? Yeah, I saw it completely blind. I, like I said, I was working at the movie theater and I, I had seen, I saw people, coming like I saw how busy it was opening weekend and like I said people were in costume and things like that so I went in just knowing okay it's a kid he learns magic cool whatever and then I went to see it I was like I gotta see this because even then I was a student of pop culture so I um I checked it out and I was I was kind of I got swept away in in the in the whole thing and like I said I think it does such a great job ushering you into that world that the the way that the the slow reveal of uh, the entrance to Diagon Alley and just the the wide shots of the approach to the castle and the introduction of all the characters and you know how charming are Daniel Radcliffe, Rupert Grint, and uh, Emma Watson in this? As uh, you know, as child actors, there's like you can kind of see that they're a little bit rough around the edges, but I think for the most part, their charisma carries them through it. Oh yeah, and and almost helped like there was an awkwardness about it, but I was like. I was awkward at that age. Right, like exactly. it almost it was it felt very real. And I just love when she's like, I'm Hermione. Like you could just tell it was just like you could just tell they got who they were, which I think is a feat for child actors to really kind of know who you are. And yeah, and they they weren't polished, but I almost feel like that helped them that they weren't. And I mean, it is interesting, though, hearing your perspective of watching it for the first time, because I almost felt like I had a bias when watching it because I just love the book so much um, that, you know, there's almost a moment, of course, I was going to like it. You know, I love the books. 
that's how I that's how I am even now with Star Wars. Like the Rise of Skywalker, I have lots of issues with, but I'm like at the end of the day, it's Star Wars, so I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna rewatch Star Wars. It's like you know, you're when you're into a fandom, I feel like for the most part, you're kind of in it till the end. Like it's it's an everlasting thing, and I think that Harry Potter is definitely. I mean, that definitely applies here. And I I agree with you as far as the awkwardness of the performances. And I think Emma Watson is easily, I mean, it's also her character, but she's easily the most confident on screen. I'm thinking particularly mm-hmm. on the train where she's like, oh, I'm Hermione Granger, like you said. And then she says, yeah. are you doing, oh, you're doing magic. Let's see then. And she's like ready to judge, ready to judge how well he's going to do the spell and kind of comes in and owns it. Like, I think from this movie, you can already tell, well, she's going to be the, the big, she's going to be, she's the natural of the three of them, like easily. And I think that's, oh, yeah. that's come to fruition. I mean, look, she's she's in Beauty and the Beast. She was in the Bling Ring, and uh, she's in Little Women now. So I mean, she's she's definitely got the the most established career of the three main stars. Oh, definitely. It, it's funny though because I did go see Daniel Rick, Daniel Radcliffe on Broadway. I saw him in the musical How to Succeed um, in, on uh, in Business without even trying, and I saw him in Equus. <laughs> I remember when that happened and I think it was kind of, I think it was pretty controversial because of the content of Equus and Harry Potter. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how was that? How was that experience seeing him on stage? Well, I was in the second row. <laughs> I did. I did go see, flew to New York. My mom was like, I got you Christmas present. I was like, great. Um, it was, it was interesting because like, you know, I grew up with him, you know, he was on screen from you know the first one to the last one um but actually his acting was superb i think he sometimes is very underrated but i think he likes playing those like more offbeat roles mm-hmm. now did you have you seen um, swiss army man by the way yes i loved it that's a, a great movie but a very strange movie <laughs> like it's one very of the strange. weirdest movies i've seen in the last few years for sure yeah but great script and i thought the acting was great and you know, I, I think he likes playing these offbeat characters in these weird movies because of just how mainstream Harry Potter ended up being. Um, but I think, you know, the, the kids also have such an appreciate the kids. They're like my age. Um, <laughs> these actors have such an appreciation for the books as well. Um, it's so interesting of, you know, them growing up reading them as well and just being able to say these iconic words and you know the spells and everything so it's it's really just kind of i don't like crazy in a way to think about all of us grew up with this you know it wasn't like star wars it wasn't where they created magic with a script for the first time and they didn't know whether it was going to flop or not you know, they they kind of already knew it was iconic, and I think that's almost a pressure as well. You know, these three kids who got cast in this movie, you know, I think they knew what they were getting into, and it's almost scary. And I think they did an amazing job for for having that because, you know, people, they'll judge you so quickly. I mean, look, I just like a couple years before this, look what happened to uh, poor Jake Lloyd. Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> Didn't he receive like death threats? Something like that, yeah. Oof. Yeah, people, that's not nice. 
He's, he's just a, a kid. kid. It's not his fault that George Lucas no. doesn't know how to write dialogue. <laughs> it's really not. I mean, and so I feel like, you know, if the movies were bad in any way, I think a lot of blame would have gone to the three main, you know, actors, Emma, Rupert, and um, Daniel. And, you know, luckily that didn't happen. I think it's a testament to the strength of the material, too, Mm -hmm. that they were able to get, you know, Richard Harris, RIP, and Maggie Smith, and Alan Rickman, RIP, and uh, Robbie Coltrane, and all these, like, really respected, uh, you know, British uh, actors of stage and screen to populate all these roles throughout the whole franchise. Like, it became almost like... You're a middle-aged British actor. When are you getting in Harry Potter at a certain point? Yes. I mean, John Cleese played, nearly had this nick. And I'm he like, did. they got John Cleese for this role? <laughs> to float by and make like, you know, a decapitation joke. <laughs> yeah. I was like, really? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's crazy. It, it, I think if you weren't in Harry Potter, they're like, well, why? What happened? What was yeah, wrong? It was, your agent's it's almost not like, very good. <laughs> Yeah, it's almost like their Law and Order. Like, you know, there's a joke. Every actor in New York has been on Law and Order. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you were mentioning as far as, like, introducing the world. Do you think, you know, I guess looking back on it now, do you think Chris Columbus was, at the time, I guess, a good choice to do this? Because he was most known for, you know, Home Alone and Mrs. Doubtfire. He hadn't really done anything like this scale, really, that I can think of. Or this, in this, I guess, so what's the closest thing he did to fantasy? I'm thinking like Bicentennial Man or something like that. And, you know, what was, you know, it's interesting that I think they had other directors kind of being bandied about, like, the, you know, the Zemeckis's and the, the Spielbergs, people that had worked in this kind of realm before. And I think Chris Columbus does hit a very Spielbergian sort of set of, sense of, like, awe here. Um, but, it, you know, it feels like sort of a... I don't know. It's a little bit of a left turn for him. I mean, I, I guess he did. He wrote because no, I'm looking up his filmography now to make sure I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, he wrote. Uh, he did write the Goonies and things like that. And obviously, with Home Alone, he had experience working with kids. But yeah, this came right after a stepmom and Bicentennial Man, and then Harry Potter. So, what do you you know? Do you think that was a uh, a good choice? I guess. You know, I think it ended up being a good choice. I do feel like people were like really him you know but i feel like the goonies was you know a coming to age story i don't really particularly like the goonies which might be shocking to people i actually just Um, saw it for the first time like last year and i was like "Eh, i mean it's fine if i grew up with it i would have been like this is great but seeing it you know 30 something i was just like okay i mean i guess it's fine yeah i was like this is disturbing i mean to me and i like disturbing things so for me not to like it I don't know what that's about, but, (laughs) but I mean, you know, the Goonies, but I think Home Alone had that sense of, you know, I, I don't know, he's Home Alone, he's the center point of the movie, and, you know, it's almost like his journey, his coming to himself, you know, with a family that didn't really, not necessarily care about him, but, you know, it's a busy family, and things can get lost. Um, so, you know, I guess he, he's used to working with kids, but in the end, you know, I think he did a really great job. And I don't know if that's, you know, again, to go back to the source material, he had great material to work from. I think JK had a vision 
and he executed it well. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, we mentioned Home Alone, and in that it's pretty much just the magic of Christmas, and here it's literal magic. I think yeah. I think he's good at he's good at the, you know, sentimental, schmaltzy, whatever you want to call it, you know, depending on your view of it, I guess. But he's good at the whole the whole vibe of these early Harry Potter entries, especially the first one where everything is coming from that sense of wonder, that sense of family, that sense, like the way it ends, you know, the iconic ending to this movie where he's like, it's going to be weird going home. And it's like, I'm not going home. Not really. That whole like heart tugging moment where the train takes off and you're like, yeah, see, that's why you hire Chris Columbus to send you out with the feels of a Harry Potter movie. And I think, I think in chamber of secrets, he does that kind of that same trick at the end. But I feel like that movie, I feel like these two movies are very slavish to the novel uh, to the novels, and by that I mean that there you can almost feel the chapter breaks. Like, all right, that was the chapter about the letters arriving. Here's the chapter about the train, and now the Diagon Alley chapter. And I think that works in the first one because you're introducing the world. But when you get to the second one, it's it feels to me a little clunkier. So I like I don't know I I don't know if he was the right fit for the second one per se, but I think the first one establishing the the this world, what it looks like, and the emotions that he's trying to to uh, you know a pull from the audience, I think it, it re- really works well. And that's kind of a surprise looking at the rest of his filmography. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you um, about the second one in particular. Um, but for this one, you're right. It, it didn't matter that it felt like, all right, let's move on to this one. Let's move on to this one. Because especially for people who didn't read the book, I think the first one allows you to follow along and catch up. You know, as someone who read the book going into it, I knew exactly what was going to happen, but it still filled me with like wonder and like, oh my gosh, they, they made that happen. Oh wow. That's how they, oh wow. You know, but for someone who didn't read the book, I think it was a great follow along. You know, this is really helped take you step by step into this world because, you know, like you who didn't read the book, um, with that, you know, it just let you become invested in the world. Um, whereas I think then from probably the first book on, like, okay, we get that now. Right. Now we can move on. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it doesn't matter so much in this movie if there's, and I don't really, honestly, I don't really feel like there is, if there is anything that the movie introduces that doesn't pay off or play into the actual plot because it's, it's an introduction. It's like, this is the Hogwarts. This is what, how this works. These are all the characters you need to know. This is your backstory with Voldemort. Oh, sorry. You know who? And, um, <laughs> and then when you, you know, get to his sec- name, <laughs> when, that's true. The, uh, what is that? Fear of the name only, uh, increases fear of the thing itself. But in like, uh, order the Phoenix, I think Hermione says that. Yeah. I haven't rewatched yeah, exactly. all the movies yet. I have to be doing that little by little, I guess, but they're, like are I said, I've fun? seen them so much that they're, they're up there. Um, but when you get to the second one and it's like Cornish pixies and like, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Like, let's get past that just to be like, you know, introducing additional elements because they're in the book doesn't cut it anymore. And I think by the third one, they kind of hit their stride and we're able to more cleanly adapt the important elements of the story. But, um, well, I, yeah, so that's kind of my, I, I hate the third movie, but really? we're not here to talk about Wow. That oh no, no. We have to talk <laughs> briefly about it. What's your issue with the third movie? Cause that's one um, of the more beloved. Like when I, I know. when I, I said that I was, you know, on my Facebook, I, my personal Facebook, I said I was going to do this. 
that was one of the that like one of the previous guests on the on the show. He just jumped on it. Like I got Azkaban. I was like, okay, well there, I got one down to seven to go. Uh, so what's your beef with the uh, year three? <laughs> well, okay, so year three, my beef was I think they stayed in their muggle clothes way too long. <laughs> I, I had a lot of, oh, and also the transitions. I hated those. I thought those were pointless, especially with the Whomping Willow. I was like, all right, give me more plot. Let's get past the Whomping Willow tree, please. Um, and I just felt like they like stayed on it way too long during transitions. And it was driving me crazy. And also, a lot of my friends who hadn't read the books, who were going, you know, still seeing the movies, a lot of them were like, wait, well, how did this happen? How did this happen? And I think they left out some really important plot uh, Yeah, points. I agree with that. I agree with that, actually. Yeah, and, and so I was like, instead of those stupid tree transitions, give us more of the plot, let people understand, which is what I think, you know, Christopher Columbus did well, and it could have just been utilized a little more in the third movie, and I think I would have been happy with it because there are some points in the third movie were great. I love Alfonso Carrion. I think, you know, the vibe of the movie was great. Um, how it was, you know, we're not in happy-go-lucky land anymore. You know, we are making a transition to the darker era, you know, before um, everything kind of happens, you know. and But I just felt like there's juicier stuff that we're left out and you know, it was one of the more confusing movies for a lot of my friends who hadn't read the book. It's, it, you know, because Star Wars is obviously always on my brain. I'm thinking of now the comparison, like with the sequel trilogy, how Force Awakens happened. And then there were everybody was like, it's too similar. And then Last Jedi happened. They're like, it's too different. And they're like, all right, back to this. And they're like, no, what did you do? Now I'm neither. Nobody's <laughs> happy now. Um, and, and I feel like the early Harry Potter movies, you can kind of see that sort of reactionary thing where they did the first one, it worked, they did the second one, and again, it was getting criticized for a little bit of what I said about kind of being overly long, unnecessarily, including things that aren't relevant. And then the third one, they cut out, and I, I think you're probably, if, if you're thinking what I'm, what I'm thinking you're thinking, it's the, like, the Marauder's Map and a lot of that stuff, mm -hmm. which is completely, like, they, and then I think that the, their thinking was just to put it on, you know, put it aside and then, reference it later but because the directors kept shifting from movie to movie until five that just never happens and they just never acknowledge yeah. it at all and that that's no. really awkward it is and, it, and it's one of the most important parts because it is a pivotal plot point especially for the third and it's like mm, wait hold on can we rewind a moment and I, you know, I don't care that spew got left out in any of the movies, you know, but that's, that's important, like wicked important. And yeah, it just, it just bugged me with this stupid tree transitions. I just, oh, hated that. But yeah, I feel, I think fourth, they kind of came into a little more of their own. I, that was probably one of my favorites, but yeah, I have beef with the third one. I'm glad we got that out of the way. <laughs> well, like I said, I think it's it's the lack of a, of consistency. You know that the, the screenwriter was the same, but the directors were all over the place. And then when she gets to five, you don't have that problem because it's David Yates just stuck with it all the way through the Fantastic Beast movies. Like he's just like, yeah, I'm riding this Harry I'm riding this Harry Potter train <laughs> all the way to the bank. 
from five four nine three quarters to the bank, and that's it. Yeah, I'm just gonna stay here. <laughs> I mean, he's another like, chocolate what? frog, please. <laughs> <laughs> My good sir, yes, keep yeah. on coming. Pumpkin pasties. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I like we were saying. I think the the first one it just takes us on a journey and welcomes us to the world. And I think, you know what, Christopher Columbus, you did a good job there. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. Um, what about, I feel like we should talk about the rest of the cast a little bit more. Let's talk about Richard Harris. And I guess we can kind of compare his Dumbledore to, uh, God, to totally Michael Gambon. I had like a brain issue there for a minute, like a brain fart or something. Um, you need to remember all. I, yes, I do. I really do. <laughs> Lately, I feel like I could use a uh, time turner also just so I can get oh, things done. Oh, that'd be nice. I know. Yes. Well, see, that's my other thing with the, not to go back to this, but why I like the third one is I'm a sucker for anything time travel. So you're at mashing up time travel and magic, sign me up. I mean, that, that's, that was also what, why I feel like Avengers Endgame was made for me. It's like superheroes and time travel? Hells yeah. Um, you're like, yes, this is me written all over Exactly, it. exactly. Um, so, you know, what do you, what are your thoughts on Richard Harris's more regal take on Dumbledore? And then you get to Michael Gambon and he's basically kind of an old hippie, I guess, sort of, he's just like a totally different vibe, which I think it's good that they didn't just have Michael Gambon aping Richard Harris's, uh, take though. But did that match, like which one of those Dumbledores matched what you had in your head when you were reading the books? You know, it's interesting. I always, um, from the first time you meet Dumbledore, Dumbledore in the book, he had, you know, kind of slightly heeled shoes on, um, purple robes. And, you know, I think he was mischievous. You know, there's always a glimmer in his eyes. There's always like a phrase and a little smirk at the end of it, you know, like he knew more than he was letting on to know. Um, and I think Richard Harris was a good first choice um in the fact that i think he had those sly remarks you know that hint of a oh i i know something there i'm not going to tell you yet but it's there you know and i think he was lovable and he was soft um but i think michael gambin i think he gets a lot of bad rep because of what happened in the fourth movie of, of how he reacted and he said, did you put your name in the yeah, goblet? I remember. Fire. Oh, I remember. <laughs> I <laughs> All remember. those things are my favorite. <laughs> um, and I think besides that, from that one line, because I will say I, I loved in the book how it was supposed to be delivered. But, you know, he made it his own, so I can't be too mad about that. Um, I think he's a little tougher at times as a Dumbledore. You know, you sense what he means in a way that you didn't with Richard Harris. Richard Harris, I feel like, you know, his Dumbledore, you always kind of had to be like, wait, what did he mean by that? And with Michael Gambins, you're like, oh, no, he means that. Like, (laughs) I don't even need to question what he means. Um, And I think, you know, maybe there could have been a middle ground Dumbledore, who was just slightly eccentric enough, but had the hints, you know, that sly remark and that little, like, I'm going to bring you along when I need to. But I didn't mind how either of them were. 
and maybe that's just because like Richard Harris was the first one and he's Dumbledore, you know, that's who we were introduced to on screen as, and you know, he will always be in my heart, you know, um, Michael Gambon. I mean, we, he did a good job though. Like I feel he was there. There was this intensity about him, but those movies let were welcoming the intensity, you know, with the darker shifts and everything. So I mean, do I don't know if I, I really fit the book Dumbledore, but I feel like with what the movies did, I think they were both um, good choices. Yeah, I have this thing that I say a lot with the Disney live action remakes because you know we talked about Lion King and how it was terrible because it's the same, and so I feel like if they're going to make <laughs> it, make it either better, which is really really hard. Or different, and I think in the case of Dumbledore, like at least they, like I said, they, he did his own version of it. Had he just come out and tried to do ape this performance, I think it would have, it would have been terrible. But like as you yeah. said, we have instead two very different interpretations of this character, both valid and both kind of befitting the tones of the movies in which they appear. I guess. Yeah, I think so. I think given how the movies went, they were good choices for that. I think. You know, there was hints of Dumbledore's, I guess you can say, sexuality in the book. Um, and now that J.K. Rowling kind of came out and said it, maybe, I don't know if both of them really, you know, in the head fit still. But I don't think that really mattered. So almost I'm kind of glad they just went about how they interpret him instead of trying to making him maybe something different. Right, right. What about uh, Maggie Smith? As McGonagall. Oh, God. She's so great. She can't do anything wrong. I know. Honestly. <laughs> like, I'm just, yeah. I mean, she was perfect. That, Mr. Potter. Like, I was like, sold. Yes. Yes. That's who. <laughs> and she similarly is kind of always, you know, putting the pressure on the, the kids, but also kind of has a little bit of the Dumbledore, like, looking, you know, looking out for them and ultimately kind of bends the rules to to help them out when she can and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, as Griffin, the head of Gryffindor House, I mean, she's really a key figure in this in this story. And and it it's essential that they have an actress that's as eminently likable, but also has that authority and the and that warmth right underneath the authority that Maggie Smith has. Yeah, like I wouldn't want to piss her off, but at the same time, I want to please her. But at the same time, if I need to rebel, I'm going to do it and be like, you would have done this yourself in my position. And you know, she would have been like, you're right. She'll she'll get mad at you and be like, (laughs) 10 points to Gryffindor. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like she got the understandingness of McGonagall because I think McGonagall was a fierce student growing up and a fierce woman. And now she's just, you know, has that authority and she's going to be like, don't do anything too stupid. She do it. She wisely keeps her human form and her cat form separate. So there's no digital fur confusion. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Now you're just trying to make me picture Maggie Smith as like the same as Deuteronomy. Yeah. I'm terrified. Oh, no. She dodged a bullet. She's like, I, I did it. I did the whole cat thing back in the day. We're good. Um, <laughs> a better cat thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, so much. Uh, I, I think 
arguably, I'd say, not, well, not arguably so much for this movie, but I really think Robbie Coltrane's Hagrid is really the heart of this movie, but kind of almost its second one. Like, I feel Chris Columbus really hones in on that character in both of these movies um, because he is Harry's introduction to the world. He's kind of our introduction to the world. And he is, you know, really the first friend Harry makes, kind of ever, I guess, uh, in this movie. And, uh, you know, outside of living under the Dursley's staircase, cooking them dinner and and, uh, um, sicking a snake on his cousin, I think it's like, (laughs) this is like, you know, it's the first time anybody is like legitimately kind to him, making him a birthday cake and all of that. Oh, that was the best. Like the best. And I love, like they got his spelling, you know, how, how Hagrid spells and everything. It was, they really, he really captured that character. Like no one else. I couldn't imagine a single person playing Hagrid other than him. Yeah. And his role obviously kind of, diminishes as it goes on but i think in this first one he's yeah. so important he's arguably kind of the probably the fourth main character of this movie really after the main kids oh definitely especially with his oh, i never said that, I never said that. <laughs> yeah yeah like oh this is the best well he's like the uh you know unwitting uh like source to to, to them to every time they're like stuck on their investigation he's like oh probably this thing oh crap damn i didn't shouldn't have said I'm not supposed to help you out. I'm supposed to like stay over here. I'm one of the grown-ups, and he keeps getting kind of roped into to the kids and their the mystery that they're trying to deal with. And that's the other cool thing about these movies that I feel like doesn't really get pointed out as much. They're fantasies, but they're also mysteries. Like every one is like a Scooby-Doo mystery set in a magical school where they're just trying to be like to find out what's going on with the Sorcerer's Stone or the Chamber of Secrets or you know whatever. And I think that's that's another thing that you know really keeps people coming back and and it, it's every 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 movie is sort of a not a really kind of a whodunit but it's it's basically an investigation they're like little children detectives basically yeah it's it's really fun because we're in it with them together like oh wait like oh yeah let's go to the library let's try and get you know the book from the restricted section you know i think it keeps us on our toes um, and I love mysteries. Like I read like Nancy Drew, you know, I, it, it was just so much fun. I think you're right. It, it's not talked about enough, but it is really fun how they incorporate different genres. And you know, you mentioned with Robbie Coltrane, how no one could play Hagrid. So I would be remiss if we didn't, we didn't spend at least a couple minutes talking about Alan Rickman. Oh, Alan Rickman. R.I.P. again as Snape, who I still think the, the whole, the whole uh, his like last sequence in uh, Deathly Hallows 2 is probably the one of the best sequences in the whole series, just because it finally brings that character, you know, sheds a, a new light on him and you kind of finally understand him. Because speaking of mystery, he's the most mysterious because he's the one that we never know whose side he's on until basically the end of the story. Yeah, it, it's really, he's, he's the mystery that keeps on giving. Yeah, pretty much. So like, but he's, go oh, go ahead. I was going to say, so he'll, he will, um, you know, be super harsh on them and, 
and kind of conspire against them one minute. And then the next minute, he's doing a counter curse trying to protect them. Or he, you know, I know you don't like Azkaban, but he stands in front of it to protect the kids from, uh, from Lupin when he gets like all werewolfy instead of, you know, just being like, here you go, <laughs> got these kids, they're pissing me off. Uh, you know, he, like he, and he has that complicated relationship with Harry specifically. And it, it's the ultimate reveal there, I think. It, it's so powerful and st- stands up to how how complex and also how fascinating he is as a character. It is interesting. I, I do think Alan Rickman brought more heart and warmth to the character of Snape than in the book. In the book, I feel there's more malice to him and more bullying of Harry. And it makes me not like, yeah, maybe there's some redeemable qualities, but he was pretty much obsessed with Lily, his mom. And that's the only reason why he even has an inkling to protect Harry. Um, In the book, in the movie, it's Alan Rickman. There is, you can't hate him. And I think there's more, he gives him more. Um, than just a, a bully to Harry. And I feel like that was much needed for that character because then you get someone who is still unredeemable when, whereas, you know, with Alan Rickman, I think he's very redeemable at that end sequence, what you were saying. Right, right. But it's I think it's also great too because casting him, you're also you're also kind of, influencing the audience to not trust him because yeah he's alan rickman and he's super charismatic and all that but he's also hans gruber and he's also the sheriff of nottingham like so he's best known for playing a villain so when you cast him in this role that he seems like a villain it 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 kind of clouds things in an interesting way that i don't know if you would have gotten if you had apparently it was supposed to be tim roth which i'm like i don't know if i would have been as good i don't think i just that cocked been as good. my head to the side and like what <laughs> how would that <laughs> how would that have even worked i think you know the actors especially with the adults in this movie they carried their reputation of what you've seen them in and your what their images and all that stuff and i think that really actually helps his performance as snake because you're sort of because you're not mistrust, you're you're sort of mistrustful of him from the beginning because of the kinds of roles you've seen him play in the past. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, just one look for him. It's like, oh, I better stop. You know, and he does deliver a great performance because you don't want to like him. You want to think he's bad, and he doesn't really give you any notion that he isn't. And I think it's a testimony to. What you said, what he was previously cast in, and how good of an actor he is. Right. I think the the like pale skin and the like <laughs> greasy dark hair. It's like they're kind of they're kind of. I mean, it's also that sounds very much like Loki from the MCU or He's Kylo kind of, Ren or Kylo. Yes, yeah. See, that's like you're coding him as a villain. Um, you might as well have him wear a black hat and everyone else is wearing white. I mean, it's kind of. <laughs> It's kind of that whole thing again. And I think, you know, it stands to, it's a testament to the design of these characters and these, you know, the world that it, it, it is designed to be sort of misleading in that way. And I think, and I think, yeah, I think he's definitely one of the most interesting characters in all the movies. And you only get a, like a sliver of, of what he's all about in this one. 
Yes. And, you know, but you want to know more, which I think is great. And, you know, Snape was always going to be there. And Harry even knew that. He was like, I need to be watch watchful of this one. <laughs> and I think the the antagonistic relationship between Harry and Snape is ultimately the the most prominent one because Malfoy is just kind of there as like, you know, because he has to be basically. It's like, you're not going to have a movie with teenagers. Like, well, not yet at this stage, but pretty much where without having like, you know, the, you're not going to have Spider-Man without Flash Thompson, that kind of thing. So you need someone there. And obviously later in the series, I'll, I'll talk about in other episodes. I'll talk about, Malfoy's arc and where he kind of ends up, which is really interesting yes. in a different way. Book six. Yeah, exactly. I actually like that one a lot. The movie. That's and so the good. Um, yeah, it's probably one of my favorite movies. Yeah, see, me too. I feel like a lot of people were more disappointed with it for whatever reason. I mean, I think because they cut down a lot of the young Voldemort stuff, but I, mm-hmm. how many how many scenes in the movie are you going to have? You can't have like five scenes of young <laughs> Voldemort. It's like they're, they, have, they have other things going on. They had the two main ones in there. So anyway, we're going off, <laughs> off track. But it's true. You got to pick and choose. It's sort of like how in Sorcerer's Stone I was um, disappointed that they didn't have all of the um, challenges needed to get through because um, they let off, left off Snape's potions trial that Hermione really figures out. Um, but I get it. They couldn't include it. Yeah, you have to streamline it a little bit. And I think this one does a good job of minimizing the amount that they have to streamline. Plus, you know, the other fun thing with Snape is that he is, you know, the potions master, but he's always gunning for the Defense Against the Dark Arts post. And the kind of running joke that it's just a new teacher every year, I really love that too. <laughs> I think that's really fun that, that that position has kind of been basically cursed. Where here it's Quirrell, then it's... Uh, Lockhart, then it's uh, Lupin, then you know, Mad-Eyed Moody, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I love the way that that, well, not even really, really Mad-Eyed Moody, but that's that's a whole separate thing. Yeah. Um, I, well, I'm interested to know, because you didn't read the book, what did you think of Quirrell when you first met him in the movie? I mean, I think he just seems like um, kind of a stock character when you watch it without without knowing anything about him. He's just like the you know, the nerdy, like shy one. And you don't put it together until after you've seen the movie till the second viewing. Well, of course he doesn't want to shake his hand because he's got little, he's got Voldemort's face on the back of his head. <laughs> and so, um, which sounds more ridiculous than it actually is in the one. Well, I guess yes. it's still kind of ridiculous, but no, it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, also, I mean, when you see Voldemort, like right before he's about to be reborn, he's just like a little tiny snake baby. Um, kind of, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, he did. Cause he, when he makes physical contact with him, that's what happens at the end of the movie. Uh, that's how Harry defeats him. It's, and, and I, I think, yeah, they do. It's good. It's good misdirection having, uh, having him just be enough in the background, uh, so that he seems inconspicuous, but, but still, you know, still he's constantly present enough that when you go back, you're like, oh, I see what's going on. He was behind some of these things, you know. It's a little bit like, um, not as detailed, obviously, but it's a little bit like The Sixth Sense where you go back and watch, you're like, oh, because of this would have happened if this had happened. And and it it fits together in an interesting way. But you, you know, most of these kinds of stories, you would have sort of the the buffoonish, the like scaredy cat, which with the kids is... Ron gets all the comic relief with his like you know his fear of spiders and all these other things. Uh, he's always shrieking to Harry about Harry. 
Um, yes. <laughs> poor Rupert Grant, he just had to act scared a lot of the time. Um, but I think, it's true. Uh, but I think, I think I, I like where Quirrell's story goes. And I think it's a good introduction to Voldemort without really getting, giving us proper Voldemort. Cause we don't get him in the flesh until halfway through this saga, halfway through the series, really. Unless you count him being in flesh, kind of, for the the, the dream, the diary, the, the, yeah, the book version of him, yeah, I guess. But you don't, yeah, he doesn't like officially come back until the end of fourth, fourth yeah, in yeah, eight, an eight film franchise. So I think it's a good way to have Harry sort of face that that literal sort of demon uh, without actually without actually, I guess developing the story to that point because that's part of the chosen one narrative here is that he it has to he has to have he has a he's got this tragedy that literally marks him and he's got the burden of his past and it's just like his journey to to like discover what makes him special his destiny and facing off against Voldemort and it's like this is way too early in the story for that to happen so it it, it keys it up enough without uh, without you know laying its full hand out there and I think Quirrell is basically a vehicle to do so. Oh, for sure. It, it's nice, though, that watching it, it wasn't a dead giveaway. Mm-hmm. Which, that's nice. Yeah, I think so, too. Again, Alan Rickman does such a good job. Yes, he does. God. <laughs> um, I, I think one of my favorite introductions was to Malfoy. Um, you know, at the beginning, before they go into the sorting uh, hat ceremony and just that little pompous sleeked back <laughs> platinum blonde hair um it really did a good job to set up that sort of like nemesis uh structure between him and harry and you know kind of gave us an inkling more into ron's life um which i think they were setting up you know from the train until there as you know the sympathetic friend right Right. And yeah, this, I think it's interesting too, because you see in this movie, you see a lot of the, the seeds that were, that, you know, that pay off in later movies, you know, the whole thing with um, Hermione being, uh, excuse the, the profanity, mudblood, uh, the, the pure like wizarding families and the, the status within, you know, the, 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 the wizarding community, the whole thing with scabbers and how that turns out. I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of that in here and I don't know maybe you you know maybe you know more about this than I do I'm not 100% sure how much JK Rowling was had planned from the beginning and how much was just sort of retcon like not retcon but sort of retrofitted into it you know what I mean because there is certain elements in the like in the last story in Deathly Hallows everything like fits together and it feels like everything and every character that you've met has a purpose in that the the big finale um in a it's way. like she created a puzzle piece. Yeah. And it, like and a it, puzzle and it's like boop, boop, boop. Right. And it fits together in, an, in a really impressive way. It, it, and I'm, so I'm just wondering, like, was it laid out that way? Or was it kind of like the, uh, the, the second and third Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which the only reason I'm mentioning that is the whole thing, the way that they retconned that compass to serve a completely different function in the story, which was not intended uh, in the first movie, uh, like, did she just see opportunities and then kind of pull on those threads or was it, did she have a sort of a map for kind of where this was going? I, it, it looks like the latter, but I suspect it was kind of a mix of both. 
I believe there was a mix of both. If I can remember, I think she had the ending planned out all along. Um, See, that's what I thought. Okay, it does claim that uh, J.K. Rowling had an ending of the story um, that was written before she found a publisher. Okay, okay. And I think she, you know, famously, I think she told uh, Alan Rickman, like, about the twist with him, like, midway through the franchise or early on. I'm not sure exactly what point she did that. But I think that that one, for sure, I think she had planned, at least at some point, further along. Uh but yeah, I think it's, again, the world building is really fantastic in this movie. And this is the first one that has to do it. And I think it really plays out in a very satisfying way going forward. Did you feel, you know, since this movie is almost 20 years old, do you feel that the visual effects hold up or is it a little, uh, a little fuzzy in, at points? So for me, I, I'm not one uh, a big fan of CGI. Um I, I really prefer like any sort of practical use, but I get how CGI is very helpful. Um, going back and looking at it, I don't mind it <laughs> because it doesn't seem overly fake to me. Um, like I'm sure Fluffy could have used some help. Um, <laughs> I think to me, the, the sequence that it really stands out is the troll. It's really not oh. really bad. Like that sequence yeah. is, is, and that's, you know, I a hundred percent agree with you as far as practical versus, uh, you know, digital effects is that digital effects, no matter how good they are, they're always going to look crappy eventually because it will get better. Practical effects. If it's yeah. there, it's there. It's, it's tangible. Yeah. It's, there's no need to make it look real because it was really there. So I always hate the troll part because yeah. of how bad that troll looks. And then uh, I always want to forget it. Harry is on his back and it's like, he's like the, the little rubber man kind of thing. Like you see in some of the earlier um, superhero movies too, like Spider-Man on the roof of like in the first uh, Spider-Man, like um, with Sam Raimi, things like that. Like, I feel like for the most part, some of it works, but I mean, what's wrong with, what's wrong with puppets and, you know, makeup and matte paintings and things like that. I mean, I think there is nothing wrong with that. That all works much, much better. And I think you you look at something like, um, and it is a fantasy movie. You look at something like the princess bride, which is technically a fantasy movie, not the same scope as something like this, obviously, but it's all sets. It's all matte paintings and it all works because guess what? You're in a fairy tale anyway. You're in a, you're literally in a storybook in that one. So it doesn't have to look real even. No. And, but that one I think holds up the best, to be honest, princess bride. It's so good. Um, the little swamp rat creatures, I forget what they're called. The rats of unusual size or something. Yes. Like they look real almost like in that world. I'm like, yeah, those would be what that is. Sure. And you believe it. You're invested in it. I, that troll. Oh no. Now that's all I'm seeing in this little (laughs) tiny head. Oh, it's weird. It does not hold that that particular part. No, that could have been a guy in, in a, in a, you know, in a suit and then just like perspective, have him look like larger than the kids and such and such, but yeah, they should have just pulled a Jurassic park thing almost, you know? Yeah. Or little CGI overlay. Or if, if nothing else, you could, you do the, uh, the very same year, um, Lord of the Rings had a, a troll also, 
in fellowship and that one at least it's like super dark so it's you can barely see it kind of you you see the troll but not enough for it to really stand out how like you know uh, barely barely rendered it is on screen and i think uh i think yeah that's that for the most part i think the effects in these movies and obviously as the movies go on and uh the effects get better. There's less, mm-hmm. less and less and less of an issue. But again, who said in, in another 20 years, we'll look at Deathly Hallows and be like, oh man, you believe we bought that in 2011. <laughs> um, that's so true. I think the only thing I can't get behind in the first movie is that troll. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the linchpin for me. That's why I, I immediately called that. I'm like, what about the troll? Let's get to that. Well, yeah. <laughs> see, I just want to forget it. <laughs> Uh, but I get why they needed the troll. It's a plot point with Hermione. I get exactly. it. Right. That friendship has a sort of a rough patch in the, I think right around that, that point of the story. Uh, yeah, I get it. They, they don't like her cause she's bossy and eager. <laughs> that's true. And then later on, one of them ends up with her and the other one, everyone, including JK Rowling is like, yeah, she, he should have ended up with her. <sighs> Thoughts on, I, know, I guess, I thoughts on that whole thing? I mean, reading the book, I love Ron and Hermione together. Mm-hmm. In the movie, it's different. I mean, I never thought Harry and Hermione, though. Right. I always liked Harry, the idea of Harry and Luna. Mm, yeah, that would be weird. That would be interesting. Well, it, you know, they just have that moment... Um, with the Thrustrials, you know, and I feel like, you know, I was like, oh, that's a deeper bond than what, you know, him and Jenny had. But, you know, I, I a lot, there's a lot of different ships in the fandom. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have wicked opinions about oh, yeah, it. Sure. Um, <laughs> um, my though, like, I definitely, I, I'm like, she says that now, but I'm like, I really don't see Harry and Hermione together. I like that it was a friendship. I like they almost had, you know, a brother-sister relationship. And it's interesting, too, as the actors and the characters grow up, you have that that point in Deathly Hallows Part 1 where Ron is sort of jealous of Harry because, obviously, he's into Hermione, and that's kind of a relationship that's, like, on the verge of starting, I guess, because they're, they're not really technically together together until, I guess, the very end of the story, but... It's like keyed up the, over like, especially Half-Blood Prince and then leading into Deathly Hallows. And I th- it's interesting the way that, that that plays out, having watched them as children. And then there's, you know, that that vision that appears to Ron with Harry and Hermione, like basically naked, uh, essentially. Yeah. And it's like, wow, this, yeah, Harry Potter has grown up, clearly. Um, yep. And, and Bree's like, I, I, think- I knew that from when I saw him in Equus, so... <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> but not, I wouldn't have take that back. <laughs> you know, I think according to Emma, though, that was a really awkward scene. Yeah. Uh, to play out. But you don't blame her. I mean, she grew up with these two guys. Exactly. Yeah. They're both like her brothers, too. And she's like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> well, they had to, I think the thing with Ginny is that I, I think J.K. Rowling felt like Harry had come to accept the the Weasleys as his surrogate family throughout the course of the series. And I guess she felt mm-hmm. like she needed to literalize that. So she's like, oh, well, there you go. She's got nothing for Harry. It's all good. I, yeah. I I don't know. Uh, yeah. It I seems mean, like too on the nose to me. And yeah, I'm just like, yeah. oh. 
It's kind of a Which nothing why... <laughs> love story. With huh? the two of them. It's kind of a nothing love story where he's like, you're yeah. here. We're always hanging out together because I'm friends with your brother. Let's get married and have kids. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that's a whole nother thing. The epilogue. Oh, gosh. Kid, definitely leave that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm actually going to ask about that in a second. The uh, one other thing I wanted to mention too that I obviously it's not in these movies is that we don't even we don't even realize when we're watching these in the 2000s that these are period pieces in canon, all set in the 90s, and I think that's really fun and kind of interesting that J.K. Rowling just straight up like labeled it like nope, this is he was born in 1980. And this is 1981 when the, when, because that's, if you go to the website, the wiki and, you know, Pottermore or whatever, I forget now they have a different website now, but this is all just set throughout the nineties. And I think that's kind of interesting that she gave it a, you know, a year and like setting as opposed to sort of making it timeless because there's no way she, there's no reason for her to really do that. It, it does kind of feel like it exists outside of that. Yeah. I, I think for, I mean, I think as a writer, though, if I was to write this, I would want to make an understanding of a timeline for myself. So I, I think that's what she kind of did and just stuck with it instead of going back and maybe thinking, well, um, you know, the first wizarding war could have happened at any point. This could have happened any point. But almost like kind of when you like have to figure out a timeline, well, how old would this person be here? You know, it's kind of interesting, although, well, I don't know how much of that timeline really matters anymore due to what happened in Fantastic Beasts 2 with McGonagall. Um, because now, like, because as, you know, we all know the timeline, we're like, wait, that's not supposed to be there. McGonagall is not supposed to be at Hogwarts at that point in time. And then <laughs> gets confusing. <laughs> um, but it's actually... I don't know, like, it's interesting because I think for most people, like, they would, it should be timeless, but I kind of like the fact that it's 90s. Yeah. But maybe that's my mis- nostalgia. <laughs> being like, oh, the 90s, the yeah. good old days. <laughs> well, at least, I mean, the, the movies never, you know, they're never, like, hanging out listening to, like, Alanis Morissette or anything. So they don't, no. <laughs> they don't, and they they don't, don't date have, it like, that way. <laughs> No, they don't have the tragic 90s clothing well, either. Well, they're in robes most of the time, I guess, anyway. So Which they don't really nice. have to deal with that, yeah. Um, so uh, I have a couple more questions I wanted to, to get into, and then we can kind of start winding down here. Uh, first of all, you know, I, now that you brought it up, I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on the Fantastic Beast movies? Because I actually saw the first one and was very meh with it. Uh, so I actually still haven't seen the crimes of Grindelwald a hundred percent. So, because I, I, you know, the fact that I wasn't really blown away by the first one, the fact that it feels so disconnected from this story that I'm actually invested in. And then there's a the whole Johnny Depp thing that I'm like, ah, I'm kind of over him now. Uh, oh what, what are your, what are your thoughts on those movies? And I guess the continuing franchise that they're really sticking to that five movie plan for some reason. Um, I think it could be good. Um, I actually really enjoyed Newt. I enjoy Eddie Renning as Newt Scamander. I enjoy visiting other parts of the Wizarding world. And I enjoy other timelines. Um, That being said, J.K. Rowling is not a screenwriter at all. Um, She doesn't know how to really write for the screen. And I feel like 
I wish she wrote books before the movies. Um, I think in the books, she's allowed to have more freedom to write more in depth um, and allow us. This is why I kind of liked reading the books before, because I went into the movies having more knowledge and understanding a little more in depth. So when I was watching the movies, I felt like I knew a little more. So it was it was fine. I, I don't know why. Um, but with these movies, I feel like there's a lot of information to get to and she's rushing everything. So we're not taking our same time to get to things. And Johnny Depp was a very letdown for me as Grindelwald. Um, I wish they kept him as Colin Farrell. Yeah. Yeah. Colin Farrell was great in that first one. Yeah, or bring back Jamie Bauer Campbell, who did play him in the flashback scene. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. And I'm like, Jamie Bauer Campbell's an excellent actor. Why couldn't he have done it? Um, and so the second one, actually, Geeky Girl Gab, we did a whole podcast on Crimes of Grindelwald because it was slightly an utter disaster. There just needed to be more scenes, I think to allow character growth and that's not being allowed right now. It's stunted. Um, but I mean, cause I would really like a marauder show. Um, going back to when Lily and James were in school, I think there's a lot that could be done with serious and it would be just fun. Um, but I don't think JK Rowling should write and not the guy who wrote, cursed child because that was a huge flop in my opinion well that that's actually the next question i was going to ask so you mentioned that you're not a fan of the epilogue here do you do you want any kind of proper follow-up to this series either an adaptation of cursed child or something else i mean daniel radcliffe is 30 now and then going by the jk rowling approved timeline harry is i think 37 in the epilogue so he's kind of getting like if they were going to do that like it's almost time to start working on it yeah yeah, no. Um, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, and Cursed Child is there, and I wish it wasn't. Um, it it read like a giant fanfic, which is kind of like what the epilogue did of like, especially the naming of the kids. I just was like, really now? Like, what is going on? I, I just couldn't couldn't deal with it. Um, and maybe you know that's just my opinion. Um, but it just like Harry getting mad all the time and not accepting, you know, his kid getting into Slytherin and having this whole thing. I was like, feels like a step backwards a little bit. Yes, you named your kid after Severus Snape, who was head of Slytherin House. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah, and he even said too in the epilogue, like it doesn't matter what house you get into. So where did that logic go? Like out the window. I just realized like a kid who was tormented by, you know, Petunia and what's his face? Vernon. Um, Vernon. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Which is why it's always funny to me where Dumbledore is like, he's better off here with these people. I'm like, is he though? I don't know. I know. Like, really? Are we just giving him more PTSD? Yes. Really? Um, Like, I just feel like he would take time with his kids, like to explain things. Like, 
because that's one thing that Harry never got and was upset about, especially in year five, was no one communicated with him. And he, you know, that's where more of his PTSD shows up, I think. And I feel like he'd be big on communication. And in this play, I'm like, what, what, what? is going on. It just feels like he didn't understand Harry's character. Like he was just trying to create this thing. So if they were going to do something now, um, I, I volunteer to write something <laughs> if they're up for it. Like I'll do it. <laughs> I got you JK. I'll make everything better. <laughs> well, I think to play devil's advocate for a second, I think that's kind of his, isn't that kind of his arc in the Chris child? Cause I read it, but it was like, I don't I haven't, it's it's it is kind of it is very disposable I think in a way like I finished reading and I was like yeah. okay I read it okay cool done but like, like, so it didn't but, stick with me I think his arc is to realize wait a minute I'm making the same mistakes the people were making with me isn't that kind of his turn towards yeah the but the thing is is like would he need to learn that because I feel like he would already know that it just seems like a very like unnatural stance and just trying to create drama when maybe there could have been like a new a new dark Lord trying to uprise, you know what? Like it could have been about family issues, but I would think more so that Albus was more feared of who he was internally and like trying to escape what he thought he could become. And that would have been interesting because then Harry's art could have been showing understanding and showing Albus, you know, what he did it's like you know i try to run from this whole you know because harry was reluctant to be chosen one anyway you know and he had to come to terms to deal with that so i think showing albus like coming to terms with identity and who you are would have been a stronger arc for him uh than just learning not to do what not not to not communicate and yell a lot and not be accepting. I right. Think, I don't know. It just it feels very left field for Harry instead of like making him stronger as a person. Yeah, fair enough. I think I mean in the 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 cinematic landscape that we're in now, I think it's inevitable they're they're going to do something with these with this uh franchise once Fantastic Beasts has run its course or whatever. Um so it's it'll be interesting to see if they do pick that up and brush it off and adapt it and maybe correct some of the issues that fans like yourself are calling it out for. And like, well, okay, we can do Chris Child. We can have it based on that, but let's fix this element of it because it's kind of all over the place. Yeah. So uh, is there anything about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone we didn't talk about and we didn't get into that you wanted to mention? I will say we didn't really talk about Vernon or Petunia. We did not, yet. yeah. Um, I mean, granted... <laughs> Why should we get? Yeah, they're not very nice. They don't need. They don't need airtime. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say they were very good, though. That who actors they got um, were great, and they think you know you need that in the story to really understand who Harry is, what makes him who he is, and why this magical world is so important to him. And I really think they did a great job going, you know how they did it, you know, the stupid Dudley. It's like, well, I wanted 37. I only counted 36. You well, know, you I'd... see it in Harry's face in that moment too. He looks over and he's not even like, oh, my cousin's silly. He already looks pissed off. Like you mm-hmm. could see the anger on his face. And that's when I saw that, 
I, I immediately thought of Order of the Phoenix, where he's like, I'm just so angry all the time. I'm like, yeah, I can see that from like your first yeah. scene in the movie that you're like, you've been dealing with this crap for 10 years. And now you get to discuss, you know, now you discover you're special and you're like, okay, everything is solved. Meanwhile, you have this, now the burden of being a chosen one. You have everyone who's sort of telling you half truths and guiding you, uh, you know, kind of haphazardly through these mysteries and adventures when they, when it's be very easy for Dumbledore to sit you down and be like, listen, this is what's happened. This is my plan. Uh, let's work together on this. Instead, he's just like, no, 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 I'm going to keep you at an arm's length thinking he's doing the best for him. And I think, honestly, there's probably something to that as far as it feels like there's an analog for child rearing in general there where it's like, well, I'm going to, you know, back in the day, the the father was very like traditional gender roles and was like, well, I'm going to work and I'm going to pat you on the head and then you're going to, you know, you're going to go to bed and I'm going to keep you at a distance and that'll make you stronger or whatever. Like, I feel like there's some elements of that kind of, mindset in the adults ending in the story yeah and yeah I love that moment I I think it just does a great job of understanding where he's come from and why you know why he's gonna fight for Hogwarts and the magical world because it's really what he has plus you get a little tease for the parcel tongue to come early on yes. in this one too, which is oh. cool. Which again, if she had that plan, that's genius. If she was just like, hmm, ooh, I can make that in the next one. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that's little things like that, that when you go back and rewatch this franchise from the beginning, you're like, oh, snap, he was speaking parcel tongue. And we were seeing it from his perspective. So it looks like he was saying English. But meanwhile, he's going, ah, size, to the snake in the middle of the zoo. And I think that's really cool uh, to, to have that, you know, that full context and and perspective of the the story. Yeah. It's so amazing. And, you know, it almost is like that moment, whether subconscious or not, we're like, Oh, could Harry be the heir of Slytherin? Because that thing happened in the first movie. Right. (laughs) Like, Hmm. And almost makes us question what we know about him. Right. Yeah. I think it makes his his storyline that much richer the, the parallels between him and Voldemort and the connection that they mm-hmm. share and all that. Yeah. It just, it builds it up and it's epic. Well, that's, I think, the perfect way to end this conversation. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Brie, can you tell listeners where they can find you on social media? Yeah. Um, personally, you can find me at Brie Osmude, which is a very long name. I don't know why I just gave that out. Um, or just find me at, at Geeky Girl Gab, which is my podcast with Candice. And you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr under the same name. Thank you so much, Bree, for coming on and, and helping us kick off the Harry Potter series. And we'll definitely have to get you back on here at some point to talk about uh, something else. So just let me know if you think of anything and, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch and get you back on the show. Awesome. Thank you again for having me. Harry Potter has really shaped my life and, you know, it's been something that, you know, I always geek out over truly forever and ever. I will never stop. So thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, that's like, you know, that's, I'm really now excited as well about looking at these movies and and seeing them, experiencing them all over again, because it's been, it's been a while since I've gone back and watched them. So it's fun to kind of bask in the the Harry Potter fandom for a bit. Yeah, you should make um, 
Mrs. Weasley special fudge and butterbeer when you do watch them. Oh, the butterbeer is so good. At least the one in, yes. in, in Universal. I know. I We have a rinky-dink version over here in Hollywood. Oh, <laughs> it's yeah. not the same, but <laughs> yeah. I mean, I try to go there and enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> I should look that up. Like, look up. I'm sure there's a million recipes online of how people are trying to replicate that. I should. Oh, yeah. Next time, a I, really good one. Either for when I'm watching the movie or when I'm recording the next podcast, be sitting here with a. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And if you like alcohol, there's a really good yes, one that includes yeah. Frangelico in it. Interesting. Mm. Mm. Real good. <laughs> well, you'll have to send that to me, I think. <laughs> I will. <laughs> after the show. <laughs> Well, thanks so much again, Brie, for coming on, and uh, we'll, we'll talk again soon. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you again for having me. If you're interested in joining me on the show to chat about one of your favorite films, head on over to crookedtable.com slash guest. Or you can consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash crookedtable. Of course, you can always find more podcasts, reviews, videos, and other movie-related goodies over at crookedtable.com. Until next time, this has been the Crooked Table Podcast, and I've been Rob. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.